Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor, as always, to have the opportunity to bring the word. The sermon today is entitled, A Dangerous Table, and the scripture is Matthew 26, verses 17 through 29. I'll read it for us now. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said to them, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. But woe to the man who, sorry, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Please pray with me. Lord, still us, that we might feel your presence with us, that we might hear your word to us, and that we might live as your Son taught us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Questions Raised, and today we will talk about the Lord's Supper and the questions that go along with that. It's important for us as Christians to ask questions. Questions like, why do we do the things that we do? The Christian life is full of rituals and ordinances that become rote memorization for those of us who attend church week in and week out. But to the outsider, many Christian behaviors are difficult to understand and bizarre to participate in. For instance, you may know the words of the Lord's Prayer by heart or be able to sing the doxology without the hymnal. But for many, these words are not only complicated to recite, they're hard to comprehend. Similarly, you may know when and how to take the bread and the juice, but for many, the Lord's Supper is a confounding practice. Why do Christians gather regularly and make a big deal out of a crouton of bread and a sip of juice? And what does it even mean? 
As I've been asking these questions to prepare for this sermon, I uh, was delighted to get to share the New Year's, New Year's Day service with the Moyer family. I got to sit next to our young friend, Georgia Moyer, and I was delighted to overhear her asking my teenage daughter, Maggie, questions as the elements were passed. What does it taste like? She said. Is it good? She wondered as she looked at the small square of bread. I noticed her noticing the three um, small holes inscribed on the bread, so I leaned over and I asked her if she knew why they were there. Yes, she said, for God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. She was spot on. Georgia knows a lot about the table, but because she hasn't taken her first communion yet, it's still foreign and mysterious to her. An added complexity on that Sunday for her was why I wasn't taking the elements. You can't have that, she asked. No, I said, it has gluten in it. The juice came by, you can't have that either. No, I said. So Georgia and I sat in solidarity, asking our big questions and wondering who can have that. Strikingly, without even taking the elements that morning, it's the most included I've felt in communion in some time. The question of what our routines and rituals mean is an important one. So is the question of who can have that. With these questions in mind, let us consider the Lord's table together. There are three gospel accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper. They're found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In these texts, we find four key elements of the Lord's Supper, including making preparation ahead of time, acknowledging that our sin betrays Christ, giving thanks to God, and humbly receiving the bread and the cup. The first element Preparing to take the supper requires thoughtful planning. The scriptures outlined specific instructions the disciples were to follow in order to prepare for the meal. Here at Second Baptist, we have a dedicated team who prepare the bread and plate it carefully. They pour the cups of juice and place them into the communion trays, and they set everything out just so. There is thought, care, and intention in their acts as they set the table for us. There are also teams of deacons who train so that they can serve the communion in a unified and deliberate way. As congregants, we prepare too. We prepare by placing our faith in Christ. We come to the table as believers. Each element of preparation helps ensure a level of reverence that sets this meal apart from any other food we may consume here at church or at home or out in the community. By preparing for the Lord's Supper ahead of time, we signify that this meal is special. In addition to outlining the proper preparation for the table, the gospel spends a significant amount of time pointing out that someone at the table 
would betray Christ. Now, it's easy to focus on Judas and his ultimate betrayal, but please notice that in that moment, each of the disciples perceived the possibility that against all of their hopes, wishes, and efforts, any one of them could be the guilty party. Not me. Not me. Surely not me, Lord. Everyone at the table recognized that they could be the one to betray Christ. Even now, disciples at the table do well to recognize the possibility that with our words, our actions, our behaviors, and our omissions, we too can betray Christ. We are all sinners in need of grace, and by participating in the Lord's Supper, we are afforded time to acknowledge that sin and reflect on our deep need for Christ's sacrifice. Once we've made preparations and acknowledged our need for the supper, we give thanks. Gratitude is a hallmark of the table. In the gospel accounts, it's Jesus who gives thanks over both the bread and the cup. Notice, even Jesus, whom the bread and the cup represent, pauses to give thanks to God for the meal before them. I've heard people give thanks to the chef. I've heard people give thanks to their server. I've heard people give thanks to the farmer and even sometimes give thanks to the cows. And that is great. But Jesus sets the example that even if the meal is the result of your own sacrificial efforts, the ultimate thanks still goes to God. We gather before the table to thank God for God's infinite saving grace. By exercising a spirit of gratitude at the table, we humble ourselves before God Almighty. Yet it's not enough to prepare for the meal, acknowledge our need for the meal, and give thanks for the meal. If we do not accept for ourselves Christ's sacrifice, we have no part in it. The act of receiving moves us from passive onlookers to active participants. Jesus doesn't offer the bread and cup as mere symbols, you see. He offers them as spiritual sustenance. He means for us to not only know his sacrifice, but to be covenantally bound to it so that it can bear us up when the burden of sin weighs us down. Notice that in the gospel accounts, Every disciple of Christ is invited to the table, even Judas. Each one is offered the elements, binding them to Christ's own body and the covenant of forgiveness that would be written in his blood. No one is excluded. Even the one whose guilt was publicly known and acknowledged. This inclusion was dangerous for Jesus. It would play a part 
in leading to his death. But he did it anyway. And therein lies a bit of complexity. Learning about communion and why we celebrate it is crucially important. But how and with whom we celebrate is equally important. Beyond the instructions of Jesus in the Gospels, we find a fourth account of the shared table tucked into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. The first four verses repeat the same instructions found in the Gospels. But verse 27 goes on to say, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. The passage later adds, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it should not result in judgment. Something different is happening here. It seems that the table fellowship of the early Corinthian church had devolved into a sort of first come, first serve potluck rather than a holy ritual meal. The people were treating the table cavalierly. They were failing to take time to remember Christ's sacrifice as an act of worship. Paul chastised the Corinthians because the bread and the cup are not meant to be some kind of cheers to Jesus, but a collective connection to and participation in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Beyond that, the people were not only casually partaking with disregard to their own state of being, they were disrespecting those around them. The socially diverse church in Corinth included both people of means and people of poorer social status. At the time, the shared table was still a meal and therefore more substantial than our modern crusts of bread. And in this passage, it seems that some well-to-do members were arriving early, eating the food, and drinking the wine as if it were an hors d'oeuvre hour. They were not waiting for the full church to gather, which meant that when the lower class members arrived, they had not only missed the fellowship of a shared meal, but they weren't even afforded leftovers that would have been physically sustaining to them. Paul warned that such exclusion would lead to judgment. Exclusion, after all, has the power to make for a very dangerous table. Even today, visitors to various churches will discover a push and pull toward and away from the table. And despite centuries of effort to clarify the mystery of the Lord's Supper, theologians have never quite been able to explain exactly what happens there. This is why different churches have different practices around who can take the Lord's Supper and how it is administered. 
in some churches, the table is open to any believer who wishes to participate. At others, non-members are asked to refrain from participating. At still others, members of the same denomination can participate, and there have even been churches where only the officiants can take the supper. But even these discrepancies serve to remind us that something distinct is happening when we come to the table. After years of attending open table churches, I remember remaining seated one Sunday as my college roommate went forward to receive communion. In her congregation, the invitation was for members only, and I'll admit it was a strange experience for me. I'll also admit I sat in the pew secretly wondering what danger awaited if I snuck up and ate that bread or drank from that cup. Which leads me to another question. Can the elements themselves be dangerous? Because of food allergies I developed in adulthood, I now tend to be hyper aware of the elements being served. One Sunday several years ago at another church, I felt compelled to go check the label on the new gluten-free wafers we'd gotten. The primary ingredient was pea fiber, which is a legume, and I immediately remembered that one of the children in our church had both a gluten and a legume allergy. His legume allergy causes anaphylactic shock. I raced into the sanctuary and found his mother, and I warned her that he should not by any means take communion today. She pulled a baggie out of her purse with a crust of homemade gluten-free bread in it, and she said, don't worry, he never takes the common elements. She was prepared, but we had set a dangerous table, which begs the question, how often do we set dangerous tables in the presence of our Lord? In response to this, many churches have moved from wine to grape juice as a sign of love to our brothers and sisters who battle alcoholism. Many churches have moved to offer gluten-free wafers as a sign of love for our celiac and gluten-tolerant members. Many churches have done away with the common cup as a sign of love and precaution against spreading communicable diseases. There are even churches that invite members to partake of any morsel or cup that serves them in order to meet the needs of each individual. In this way, baggies of bread in mothers' purses become just as sacred as the table before us. And these moves are important. But I wonder, what happens when the table becomes so individualized that we lose all sense of a shared communal meal? That's why it's so important that we continue to gather together around the table, in person, in community, even when it's confusing and tricky and downright hard. I've been wrestling with how to safely take communion for over a decade now. I don't have a clear sense of what a shared table looks like moving forward, but I do have this, a vivid communion memory.
One day, about 20 years ago, I experienced the beautiful tension between individually receiving communion and sharing the communion of Christ collectively. I was sitting in the upper room of a nondescript building in the downtown area of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was a regular Sunday morning, just like any other, and the communion elements were being distributed. But on this day, someone had taken a great deal of liberty in filling the cups. In fact, one cup was filled clear to the brim. There was a young boy sitting not far from me, and he had his sights set on that overfull cup. And as the tray was passed, he expectantly eyed the cup, moving closer and closer to his grasp. And I will tell you, when he finally took it in his hands, his joy was palpable. I remember sensing a vicarious thrill myself as his fingers became sticky with the overflowing juice. That morning, just as the boy eagerly took the most juice he could possibly get, I found myself swept up in wanting the most of Jesus I could possibly get. It was a visceral feeling, one that's never left me. In that moment, he both received the full cup, and as his cup overflowed, he shared Christ with me. On that day, we truly took communion together. I felt similarly just a few weeks ago, sitting right over there, as Georgia and I vicariously participated in communion with Maggie. Even if I didn't get to taste the bread or drink the cup, I was overwhelmed with how we were all swept up into the table together. That's what the table is meant to be. At the first communion, Jesus instituted a meal where everyone was invited without qualification. Questions? were welcome. Truths were told. Bread was broken and cups were poured out for everyone. Throughout history, God continues to invite us back to the table, hoping that we will choose to come and share what we have in common rather than letting what separates us keep us apart. In doing so, God invites us to prepare tables that account for everyone. God asks us to acknowledge the fact that while none of us are worthy, all of us are welcome. God draws near to us, graciously receiving our thanksgiving. And God miraculously allows us to receive the sustaining presence of Christ through the supper time and time and time again. So let us come to the table today, not out of mere habit, but responding to Jesus' invitation to be in communion with one another, even as we participate in Holy Communion. 
Let us take the risk to come to the table, leaving with sticky fingers, all the while seeking to let our cups overflow into the lives of those around us so that we can all be swept up into the table of grace together. Inclusion, after all, has the power to be a beautifully dangerous table. Amen.